0: On April 16, 2009, Kim watched her 44-year-old husband take his last breath. During his illness and after his death, she was amazed by the helpful ways their coworkers, bosses, friends, and family supported them. Kim started calling their kind actions acts of love. After the death of her husband, Kim as an HR leader noticed how little guidance leaders received when navigating career, health crises, or the death of a team member. She knew their lack of knowledge Negatively affected morale, employee engagement, and productivity. She set out to change that. Combining her personal experience with her professional knowledge and leadership skills, Kim launched her business to support leaders and coworkers when cancer or any health crisis affects team members. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Thank you,
1: Dana. It's really good to be here.
0: Well, tell me about a time when you were in the trenches and managed to call out.
1: Sure. You know, I love listening to your podcast because you're like, time you're in the trenches. And I'm like, which time?
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> you <laughs> a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, I think that's something that, that people need to remember. Like we all get in the trenches a uh, lots of times in our lifetime, if we're lucky, if we're lucky to live that long. Right. And so, um, yeah, the one we're going to talk about today was, you know, is the time that my husband um, died. And, um, the story I actually like to tell is before he died and it was, he was, um, we were on an, we were on an HMO and mm-hmm. the doctor that we needed to see, that we wanted to see that we had decided was probably going to give my husband the best odds of living was on a PPO.
0: Okay.
1: And, and we like, and, and we had just done open enrollment. And so there's a person at my husband's job. My husband and him didn't really get along. They weren't friends. They weren't like, you know, friendly. They, they respected each other, but you know, they weren't like they just didn't get each other i think that's really mm-hmm. the best way to put it but this man took it upon himself to go all the way up to headquarters of where this major insurance company if i mention the name everyone would know who it is mm-hmm. and he fought them all the way up to get them to switch over to a ppo mm-hmm. and that's exactly what happened And I honestly believe that because we were on this PPO, because we got to be with this doctor the first time it gave my kids two and a half extra years to know their father. And that's the difference between dying at the, when you're dying, when you're, when your child is five and dying, when your child is seven, right? A five-year-old doesn't have a ton of memories at that point, but a seven-year-old does. Mm-hmm. And so when I, the reason I tell that story is because I honestly felt that I was never in the trenches alone. And I feel so grateful for that. And it's, and it's not because I'm super special and my husband were super involved in our community. It's really, it was really about being able to open my eyes and to see what was there and being offered to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I often talk about how after he died, you know, I I talk a lot to young widows, and, you know, they they always want to know how do you, like, I'm at year 13, like, how did you get there? Like, how do you look so normal? Why are you functioning so well? And I often it, uh, attribute it to two things. One was my expectations were really low. My goal every day was to put one pinky toe in front of the other, not even one foot, because one foot was yeah. felt like way too big. One mm-hmm. pinky toe in front of the other. And the day he died was day one. Mm-hmm. And I kept counting and people said, Oh my God, that seems so morbid. Like you're counting the days that you're, you know, that you're going to be around that your husband isn't, but I counted them because I knew for sure that at some point, the pain I was in the screw, the, the, the terror that I was feeling, the, the incompleteness that I felt it would eventually dissipate and it wouldn't hurt so much. And so, and I didn't know what day that was going to be. I didn't know it was going to be day 365 or day 1,274 or day 2,000 or something. I do remember that I did end up counting to 2,000 and something. I don't remember exactly what number it was. So it was several years where I finally was like, oh, I think I've got this. Um, So I think those two things were, and, and then no one taught me, no, it just seemed like that was just the right thing to do at the time. Um so that was my trench and that's sort of how I worked out of it there's a, co- of course a ton more details in there but I think the thing for me was I was never alone in the trench we were always mm-hmm. having people showing up especially early on it was so incredibly vital um and I'm not here being as sane <laughs> as I am mm-hmm. um depending on the day and depending who you ask um because I'm really strong. I was able to get through a really difficult time. I'm here because the foundation for my new life was partly laid by the people who showed up for my husband, myself, and our kids. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So, um, at the time he passed, um, you told me in the pre-chat you were an educator.
1: Yeah. So, um, I was but right before he passed, I was an educator. I've been working for a non, I've been working for a nonprofit. Um, okay. actually I was, So I I, want to be really clear. I wasn't quite an educator. I had come out of the education field and I was working for an educational nonprofit.
0: Okay. Okay. And so, um, you know, this is a situation, you know, we have a lot of colleagues throughout the year that have um, family members who pass. I mean, just an example at the school, I work at the assistant principal. She had her uh, father in the hospital for, several months um and then he ended up passing i think christmas day and then an aunt the sister of her father passed around the same time uh-huh. so here she yes. came back to school yesterday you know she took an extra week week of bereavement but um i think a lot of people you know who work with somebody who's we know has lost a family member or two um you know we don't know what to say or do i mean our school we took a collection, we got her a basket, we got a basket for her kids, things like that. But, you know, signing cards is one thing, you know, do- donating money is another, but really for the people who are not, um, who haven't been through something like that, especially during the school year and they're working in a school close proximity, or, you know, often with somebody who's just gone through a tragic situation in their life with the loss of a family member, um, what is the best thing the coworker can do?
1: Sure. So, you know, I realized, remember the education piece, my husband was, was a a, um, a head of the upper school when he okay, died. Okay. So, and he died April. He didn't have okay. the convenience of dying at the end of the school year. Um, yeah. So I think the first thing I always tell everybody is there's a phrase we all use and we say it every single time and we think it's really helpful, but it's the least helpful phrase to say. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell everyone, go ahead and hit yourself over the, you know, hit yourself on the back with a stick one more time and then be done because you didn't know any better. And the phrase and the phrase is, if you need anything, let me know. Yeah. And it sounds so helpful, right? If yeah. you need anything, you just, you just call me. And yeah. in the moment when we say it, like if if I said that to you, I'd be like, you need caviar from Alaska. I got it. I'm going to figure out how mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. We uh-huh. feel this incredible passion, but then I'd walk away and three days later, I'm like, I can't go to Alaska. I can't get caviar, like I can't do that, right? So I think the thing that we, there's really four reasons that it's the least helpful thing to say. The first one is when someone is going through something like that, they want to be acknowledged. And I often love to tell the story. Pretend that something great happened to you. You had grandkids, you just got a kid, you have a new house, you know, you got a raise, a new job. You're super excited about this new thing. And you go to lunch with six people You all know about this new thing and no one says anything to you. No one says nothing. Most people report feeling unseen. They're mad. They're hurt that no one acknowledged it. And that same thing is true. When there is a tragedy, it feels uncomfortable, it doesn't, we don't want necessarily want to acknowledge, we worry about acknowledging it, but we want you want to connect with the person who is going through that thing because it's a human experience and we all want to be witnessed. We want to be witnessed when good things happen, we want to be witnessed when bad things happen. So I think that's the first thing. So that phrase doesn't do that, doesn't acknowledge it at all. The second reason it's not helpful is what is anything? Like anything is too big a word that, you know, I had toddler. Did that mean you were going to go pick up my sneezing, coughing, you know, snot nosed toddler in your brand new car? Mm-hmm. Um, or did that mean you'd be happy to drop off a bottle of wine, right? Does it mean you're going to come, you'd be comfortable reading to my dying mother? Cause that's really, I need a break. Or did you mean that you'd be, you know, you'd be happy to give a call and and tell a joke every once in a while. So anything is too big for anyone to wrap their head around. The third reason it's not helpful is, is you're asking the person who's in crisis to figure out what anything is. So you're asking them to break apart their day and to figure out what you meant by anything. And we all know you didn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm. You meant it in the moment, but you didn't mean you'd go to Alaska and get me caviar. That's not what you meant. And yeah. there are certain things that you'd be happy to do. And other things like, you know, look, I really like my sleep. Taking a phone call from you at 2 a.m. in the morning is not a great idea for me. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so so anything, you know, putting the pressure on the person who's already under pressure to come up with that thing. The, th- the fourth reason it's not helpful, which is actually one of the biggest reasons we forget. is I don't know about you, but how good are you at asking for help when you really need it? Yeah, like you know, like I I don't know I, I you know when I give this talk in person, say I want all of you to raise your hand who really good at offering help, and all the hands go up, right? Mm-hmm. And then I say, how many of you are really good at receiving help? And almost all the hands come down. There's like two or three hands that remain. So again, this is one of those things where people just aren't are, aren't good at asking for help, and you add this extra layer of vulnerability. I didn't want to be a burden to anyone. I got that what I was going to ask for was going to take someone out of their way. I didn't want to be a burden. I was very self-conscious about it. So the idea of, of asking someone, even if I figured out what it is I need, asking someone to get it wasn't going to occur. So that's why it's the least helpful thing to say. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Now that you say it that way, um, it's, it's easier to understand, like, you know, it's really, um, you know, if if you knew kind of where to help them in terms of like childcare or, you know, uh, getting um, somebody to clean their house or something like that, but having them figure it out, uh, it's just an extra layer, as you said. And, um, yeah. you know, it also depends on how well you know the person. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to find out kind of um, if you had a coworker um, who is diagnosed with cancer or even a friend. So I've had uh, both family member and a friend diagnosed with cancer for those who listening who, you know, have might have somebody they work with or even a boss who's diagnosed with cancer. What is the best way to approach that? Cause you know, it could be a coworker or a boss and they might not be very open about it or, you know, j- just might be on the, you know, surface layer, you know, so-and-so has uh, been diagnosed. They're going to be out uh, receiving chemo treatments. Um, but you know, what, what is the best way to approach that? Is it kind of the same as that, um, the answer to the first question, when it has to do with bereavement, or because uh, this time you're just helping that person through navigate through the illness.
1: No, uh, so here's actually here's the um, thing to say, and it doesn't really matter what the situation is, whether it's illness or death or depression. Yeah. Um, it can be the first thing is to acknowledge it, and I know this feels for many people like it's not helpful, but saying. I am so sorry this is happening to you. I'm so so sorry this is part of your life event. That's a perfectly normal thing to say. In addition, you can always say, you know, I don't know what to say. Like I am so, so upset by the situation, I find myself speechless. And that's a really wonderful thing to say. Mm -hmm. The second thing you want to think about is what your helping superpower is. And I know that people think I don't have a helping superpower. Well, actually you do. Every one of us does. These are the things that we do naturally that we really seem to enjoy doing. Like, you know what? I love cleaning my kitchen at night. I just love end of the day. It's a ritual. It signifies the end of the day. I get all the dishes out of my sink. I clean my sink down. I wipe the counters down. It makes me really, really happy. And as some of your listeners might be thinking, that's a really weird thing to offer, but you can come in and say, Hey, I'm happy to like clean up after you at the end of the day. So you can wake up to a clean kitchen in the morning. Or you can say, you know, I know that you were working with these students on this thing that you really wanted to do. I'm happy to do it for you. I'm happy to be a channel for your kids to reach out to you so that you're not, you know, you, you, you know, Art was the head of an upper school. He couldn't have all those students reaching out to him all the time. That would have been overwhelming. So the school did things like they had cards sent and they would send us a bunch of cards all at once. And so Art would be able to open these cards up and and talk, right? Um, Teacher's came and visited him, you know, teachers and administrators came and visited him. They asked and he was like, yes, I'm totally open to that. Um, So there's so many different things that you can do, but it really is a matter of kind of one, helping somebody who is going through this takes courage. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a thing that we forget because oftentimes we make it about us, right? I'm scared. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm scared. I'm going to upset them. I'm scared or worried about embarrassing myself that I don't know what to say. So we turn it about, we make it about us instead of turning it about them. And the one thing that they want, usually want, is some form of connection, especially, you know, when we think about work, we spend a lot of time at work. We feel connected to the people at work, whether we like them or not, we're connected mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And when and when it's something like a cancer diagnosis that pulls you out of the workforce, it can leave a person feeling kind of on wobbly ground. Or even if it's a diagnosis where, you know, they can't teach classes after two because they have to go get treatment. All these things happen after two and they start the next day and they feel kind of wobbly. So anything you can do that connects them to, you know, you can, I had my, I love the story. My um, cousin lives on this beautiful 90 acre ranch and she has sheeps and dogs and cats and horses and, um, and ducks and ponds and, So she, you know, Art and I used to, and the kids go there all the time. And um, so she was, you know, she's seven hours north of us. She couldn't come down and do anything specific. But what she did do is she told us stories and she told us stories about the things that happened on the ranch. Mm -hmm. And they were just so delightful and so much fun. So, you know, you can tell stories about what's happening at school, about, you know, one of the students or about one of the teachers, or, you know, you can talk about normal life. Um, in a, and and, and just keep them and help them keep them connected.
0: Yeah. That's such a good idea. Cause like, even though in our mind, like we're venting, if we're talking about maybe some issues with kids, like, you know, they're taken away from that day-to-day situation, if they're going through treatments and have to take a leave of absence. So really just letting them know, Hey, so-and-so did this today. And it makes them feel, yeah, like you said, more, more like a, you know, part of the, um, The greater uh, community at the school. Exactly. Um, So after your husband passed, um, you were working in HR. So kind of tell me about how your career path shifted uh, to do the support work that you're doing right now.
1: Sure. So my very first job back in HR was working for a president whose wife had cancer and then died and the school where my husband was at, they were very supportive of us. Um, you know, they raised a lot of, they raised money for us. They, you know, just the, the students and the staff just loved up on my husband a lot. And so I thought that that was what would happen in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very mistaken. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, the day that we got word that his wife died and one of the coworkers was like, we should bring over coal cuts. And I was like, no. Yeah. Right. Because this was a man and he had a son and I knew that everyone else was going to be bringing over food. And I knew that probably right now his refrigerator was already stocked. Right. And so we automatically go to food when food is actually one of the least helpful ways that you can help because everyone else does it. You don't need yeah. to get involved with food. Um, So, um, so, so I, I started to kind of say, well, no, we don't want to do this. And then he came back to work, you know, about two weeks after his wife died. And, you know, when, when you're dealing with a grieving person, you're essentially kind of dealing with someone who is almost, (laughs) I mean, almost bipolar, you know, they have, they're feeling really, really good. And then all of a sudden they're dropping. They have moments of clarity and beauty and sadness and softness and moments of anger and rage, and they're completely unpredictable. And so um, it's very hard to work with someone who's grieving. And so I ended up trying to coach the managers who are reporting to him and saying, hey, yes, you know, they're like, he just yelled at me. Well, you know, this is to be understandable. Mm -hmm. Here's a way you can approach it, you know. um, So so that's sort of how it started. And every progressive HR position I had after that, I saw it happen over and over again. You know, employee would go out with cancer or work part time with cancer. And their friends would say, their coworkers would say appropriate things i saw a manager who was trying to be helpful and removed all of the projects that meant something to the employee and left them with all the ones that didn't that weren't inspiring and the yeah. manager thought oh i'm going to take these off your plate to help you and the employee was like you just took off every single motivation that i have to even show up at work Mm -hmm. Right. So it's real. So I started to see this patterns of, you know, managers are what is it 70% of the people who lose, who leave their job, they leave because of a manager. So, you know, managers are very important in our lives as workers. And when you have, when you have an illness, managers often find themselves just like most people unable to know what to do. And the problem with that is the team is watching you. Right. And everything you do, everything you say around this issue, they are then realizing it's okay for me to talk about this or it's not okay for me to talk about this or he he or she doesn't understand what they're doing or how they're doing it. And so now there's a loss of respect and a loss of trust. And so that's how it ends up, you know, affecting productivity and affecting engagement. I mean, in a school setting when you have your weekly meetings, you know, kind of going around the room or what's happening and where you need support or whatever it is you do in your school, if you're, if, if the head of the department is not giving you updates on the person who is, or, or, yeah, I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to reach out to them and says that over and over and over and over and over again, mm-hmm. you're kind of like, Oh wait, they're scared right? And then they don't know what they're doing. And then that can lead into, what else do they not know what they're doing? As opposed to a, to a person who's leading a team and says, y'all, I'm as freaked out about this as you are. I don't know what to do. I want to call his wife um, or her wife or you know whatever. I want to call their partner. And I, um, I'm, I'm trying to get the courage to do that. I, I promise I'll get it done by next week. And so acknowledging that you, that's a very different head than someone who's just kind of ignoring it. And that affects, like I said, it affects how we work.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's um like you said, it's something that repeats often. Uh, maybe the field, like you said, in, in schools, we might tend to be more compassionate because we have that compassion for our students and or uh, the students' families. But really like when it translates to the corporate world, like, yeah, really, um, you know, I know a lot of organizations do have somebody in HR that Helps with grief, bereavement, things like that. But it's like knowing who to reach out to. Not, yeah, like you're saying, they there's don't. not always that. Not always, not yeah, always. I mean, you know,
1: all most organizations, if you have healthcare, you have something called the EAP, which is the Employee yeah. Assistance Program. And that's really great for you as the individual. So yeah. you as the individual, you're grieving the loss of your employee. Um, I think another thing to talk about with schools is student death. -hmm. Because that's really a tough topic. And usually I find that some schools will have someone come in and help teachers figure out how to talk to students about it but you've got sort of you've got three different parties here you've got the teachers who are grieving the student loss you've got the students who are grieving and you've got the parents and the parents are often the wildest card right because some parents like i don't want you to talk to my kid about death they don't need to know about this yeah but but they're experiencing the child whether or not the parent wants to acknowledge it. the child is experiencing the grief of others at school. So how do you manage that? And I think that's another area that there are some people out there. I know for the school that my kids, um, that two of my kids were in, fortunately and unfortunately, a parent had died the year before. And so that parent had gone out and said, and gone to the school and said, you need to get training with this organization. I live in Los Angeles and the organization is called Our House Grief Support, where they actually have people who come out. So if you're in a school, check and see if you have a local grief organization that can come in and train the teachers. And that's exactly what they did. And so when my kids lost their father, the teachers were on point they, they knew they, they weren't pushing. They, you know, my son, my youngest son, um, started really having trouble in school and they were like, it's okay. Like, I, you know, I was kind of panicked. I was like, Oh my God. I'm like, it's okay. He's, yeah. he's in the stage. We will call it when we feel like we need to call up but right now, let him, it's okay, Kim, it's okay. Um, now the hardest part was, you know, the kids, talking to my kids about what to say because they get trained by their parents. And so they were saying things like, if you need anything, let me know, or, you know, all things happen for a reason. Um, and so, you know, my kids, I, I, you know, we spent some time talking to parents. We spent some time talking to kids about here's what the, is an okay thing to say. And it's the same thing. It's not any different than it is. in an, as in an adult, mm-hmm. um, you know, it really is about, I'll never forget this little girl she was so cute. She's on the spectrum and she had obviously talked to her parents, but she came right up to me a couple of days after my husband died. And she said, Kim, I want you to know, I'm very sorry about the loss of your husband. And it was the sweetest, kindest thing. And she went up to each of my kids and said the same thing. I'm so sorry that your dad died. And, and they were, they were like, great, you know, thank you for acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not a, you know, it's, none of us want to talk about it. It's really uncomfortable. And I think it's uncomfortable because we can't fix it. We can't make it better. Yeah, And yeah. we have to sit in it, which, and uh, some of us think sitting in it means you stay in it, but it doesn't. When you sit in it, you end up sitting through it. Um, And I think that's the hardest part for us to accept.
0: Yeah. It reminds me, this podcast is a proud member of the teach better podcast network, better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at dot com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, um, you know, the high school, the middle school I work at feeds into, I mean, this past fall, they had several student deaths, I think four mm. of like three weeks. Wow. After two that died in a car accident and a few suicides. And although I didn't know the students, a lot of the teachers, you know, had taught those students in middle school. And so, you know, like you said, there, there's often grief counselors that come in, but when you have that much like community grief in the high school and middle school, right, in such a short period of time, um, you know, it's really, yeah, acknowledging, like you said, uh, the grief from the parents, the students, uh, you know, only one, you um, one of those desks um, had a sibling, you know, that right went to the school that I work at, but it's still just really understanding, you know, that it's difficult for some of the teachers, um, you know, being in that situation, those things that are unexpected, especially when it comes to youngsters. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Even last week, uh, there was a teacher who had a student, they taught in a district um, that had been murdered. Um, oh, this was another. Yeah. Another wow. district. And this was a 16 year old that was murdered. Yeah. So when you hear it, you know, it's just like, yeah, just like, you know, like
1: you and, and I think there's, you know, I think we also, I wanted to talk about, there's all different kinds of grief, right? There's the immediate grief of teachers who knew those students. Yeah. Right. And then there's the ramification of the grief, the grief of looking at one of my students. This could happen to one of my students. So there's that grief. There's the grief that you carry with you. Right. So anytime I hear about death, I just my heart sinks. Right. Because I understand what it's like to be close to the living, be the living person who's left behind. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different levels of grief. I'm a big fan of grief counselors, but not when they usually are brought in. Okay. Because I remember um, I immediately called the grief support group after my husband, died. I think it was like day two. I was like, we need to get in," And they're like, yeah. sweetheart, nope, you are too much in crisis mode. Okay. You can like, you can't even handle hearing other people's grief. And that's what grief support is. You're listening to other people grieve. She said, you know, we'll, you, we'll put you on a list and we'll get you in, in about month three or four. Um, and I think the same thing goes through through um, grief counselors. I think they're great. They're, they're good in the beginning when people really need to just kind of sit and talk and grieve, but then they leave. And yeah. you have a teacher who just broke down in class and it's three months ago that this happened. And mm-hmm. so what do you do with that? Where does that teacher go? How do you talk to the students about it? You know, depending, and that all varies on, depending on their age. If they're teenagers, you can say, you know what, you guys, I'm having a moment I really miss so-and-so right now. Something, you know, reminded me of him and I'm really missing him. I'll be back in five minutes. Teacher walks out the room, cries. I mean, that's a great model of what grief looks like. Mm-hmm. Cries, comes back in and says, he was a good person, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, and then goes on with their day. However, they feel need to. Talking to a third grader about death, is a little different, right? So that's more of, I'm feeling very sad right now because I'm just remembering, you know, um, you know, Doris, um, you know, how many of you feel sad, How feel sad right now because of Doris? And maybe they'll raise their hands and then they learn that grief has, you know, that you, they're not, they're not, it's all connected that just because people aren't showing it, they, they can feel it anyway. So there's so, all sorts of ways that you can manage it. But I think that most organizations make the mistake of dropping in those grief counselors early on, not training teachers of how to deal with it. And then, and then, you know, leaving everyone to their own devices in month three or four. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I I see how that kind of played out. Like um I think for each of those desks, they um they had, you know, counselors available at the school for, for two days. And they said, you know, let the office know if we need somebody to cover your class, those types of things, but it was like for two days the initial yeah. like shock, right? But it's like, what about that teacher who needs that moment right later on? Um, exactly. Yeah really. So um, yeah. And then, like you mentioned also that, that third grader uh, talking to them about deaths. I did have that experience last year at the school I worked at with um, it was an elementary school. So they had lost a teacher. Oh, yeah. Third graders. yeah. So um, yep. you know, working with them and just like acknowledging, like, you know, because they they don't always know how to put that into words, right? It it Mm -hmm. was a shock for them, right? Because they come back to school on a Monday and all of a sudden, right? Yep. So um, being there for them, but then knowing also, I think we we, we were able to really be able to follow up, you know, in the month that followed, like, hey, you know, a student that breaks down really being there as a support. And I know at the elementary level, there are more uh, people for the social emotional support in my experience. Are at the right. second yeah.
1: level. Yeah. Isn't it, I just always find that so interesting. It's like, I remember a friend of mine said, she said, Kim, if you're going to work, work while they're young, be home when they're teenagers. And it's the exact opposite. We all think we all need to be there when they're young, but teenagers need you present. They may not want to talk to you, but they need you present right? They need you there. And, um, I always think about, they, they do that a lot. They just kind of, you guys are, you're fine. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. And that's when they need the support the most. You know, one thing I thought about is when, um, when my husband died, my youngest was seven, he had just turned mm-hmm. seven mm-hmm. and something that one of the grief counselors said, there's a couple of things that the grief counselor said. One was that seven-year-olds death is just sort of learning to be permanent. So, anywhere, but usually five and younger, kids will ask, Are they still dead? Because they don't understand. And if you have a teacher who doesn't understand that that's part of their processing, that's part of their brain, their inability to do, inability to, 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 understand that death is permanent that teacher is going to be like stop talking about it or, or make it upset or have yeah. have all these conversations that don't need to happen just because simply the child is asking are they still dead um yeah. something else that um that my that a therapist told me was really good advice she said kim when your husband died you automatically and I tell any adult my husband died all adults immediately think of graduations, weddings, right? Mm -hmm. Big events in their first jobs, big events in their lives that the parent is going to miss. Well, kids don't know those are coming. They just don't think about them. So when my daughter graduated elementary school, she was actually, the biggest thing for her was she turned double digits after my husband died. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because after he died, I thought, oh my God, he's going to miss her 10. He's going to miss my youngest 10, like double digits. Mm -hmm. And she came to me a week before her birthday, hysterically sobbing because she realized daddy's not going to be here when I turn double digits. Right. And that was a milestone for her. And then graduating elementary school, graduating high school was a milestone for my kids. And they don't realize they're out there until they're able to understand, oh, right, he's going to miss all milestones. So that takes a certain developmental level. Um, and so we often find that, you know, kids younger don't understand that, but it's the, the kids, kids who like maybe graduating, maybe their parent died in third grade and yeah. they're graduating on sixth and uh, yeah, sixth grade, no fourth, fifth grade to go into middle school. And all of a sudden they're having their grades drop or they're have, they're really struggling in the spring. They could be struggling because they're grieving the fact that their parent isn't going to be there. And it's to them, it's just like it happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes me think, you know, more about like, yeah, those milestones that are really important to the kids. So let's shift um, a little bit more to that workplace um, culture in terms of, um, you know, if a leader uh, who's listening has an employee who needs the support because they're going through cancer treatments, or they are going through bereavement. um, How does the leader balance the employees need for support and the teams need to get done?
1: Yeah, I mean that is the number one question. I think the thing that most most managers or leaders are afraid of is they're afraid of being too empathetic. Mm-hmm. Because in their head, if I'm too empathetic, I'm going to let them get away with everything and then I'm kind of I'm kind of screwed. Um I think what happens initially is a lot of managers, um some have admitted it to me, when they hear about the employee dying or going through cancer, they immediately go to crap you know, what about this project? They're so important. How can they, and then they feel guilty that that's their first thought. Mm-hmm. And so I often tell people it's okay. That's normal to have your first thought that doesn't have anything about who you are as a person. It's just that that's, you know, we, sometimes we need to process the the, the simple little things before we can get into the big emotions of it. Um, so what I, what I like to just remind managers is empathy and productivity actually do mix very, very well together. Again, this is a, these are courageous conversations you need to have with your employee. And they start with, first of all, acknowledging what's happening to them. I'm so sorry you have cancer. And your employee can come in and, once I can back up, one thing I hear a lot of managers say is take all the time you need, take all the time you need. And I try to coach managers to never say that. If I can get to them before it, I coach them to never say that because it's, it's akin to if you need anything you want, if you need anything, yeah. let me know. How much is all the time for me all yeah. the time, maybe three days for you all the time, maybe yeah. a month. And then you don't show up for work at a mo- for a month and your manager's like, where the, where yeah. I, I don't understand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's really being, the first thing is to say something. I'm so sorry. This is happening to you. Here's what I'd like to do. Why don't we set up a time in the next two days, or if you're going to still be here, we can sit down and talk about your workload right? Just let's have a conversation about your workload and let's figure out how you can, you know, if you still want, I don't even know if you want to work anymore, like what that looks like. And then the, so the employee walks away feeling like one, they've been heard and two, their manager gets their panic, right? Because some, some employees will come in with like, I'm quitting. I don't really care. Uh, My life is you know too short. Other employees are going to come in like, okay, but I'm going to show up. I promise I'm going to be here and I'm going to do this. And I'll, I'll be, you know, so, so when you do that, Um, you have the opportunity to, to just set the employee at ease. Like, okay. The next thing I have managers do is I have them actually do some writing around their own feelings Mm -hmm. around this person and what's going, what they're going, what's going, what's happening to Mm -hmm. them and also their stereotypes. Because if you haven't had any experience with cancer or loss or depression, you have had experience by watching what other people do or what TV says to do. And so that can be very limiting and understanding what stereotypes you have. So for instance, when we talk about cancer, we think people get bald, they lose a lot of weight, they're nauseous. Those are sort of just the common things, right? They lose their eyebrows and they need a wig. Those are some of the common things. Well, maybe your employee isn't going to lose their hair. They could be in a type of treatment that isn't going to have them lose their hair. But with that idea of them being bald and losing their hair and nauseous, we associate that with being weak. And so all of a sudden we have an employee who's come in the office who you don't even realize you think is weak and you're not giving them the challenge or the the work that they want to do so that they can be continue to be part of the community. So I think it's, so I have managers walk through that. What are their personal experiences with this? Did they have cancer in their back? Let's just use cancer as an example. Do they have cancer in their background and someone close to them died of cancer? You know, what was their, Did have they had cancer, right? We forget that our managers may have had cancer in a past life or, you know, two jobs ago. So really understanding that. And then the next thing I have managers do is you have to assess the situation, really take a look at, what is this person involved in? Like, are they involved in any big projects? Or And if so, one do those projects do. Uh, what's this, you know, companies, you know, talk a lot about succession planning. Some companies do it, some companies don't, but- Is this person expected to take your position at some point, right? Or or are they expected to move up? Like, what are you thinking about succession planning? Is there anyone else on the team? If the employee cannot work for three to four months, is there anyone else on the team that can pick that up? Or are there other team members that can pick that up? Who do you need to support the team? If you know, if you're playing, you're sort of playing, um, sort of shuffling around things. So really getting a good handle on that is really important because then you can start to take action. And that action comes in a huge variety. It depends on the company, depends on the team, depends on the role of the team, you know, marketing versus sale versus tech, you know, versus customer service. It just it there, there's a whole different slew of things, but really understanding all those things, all those pieces. And, and it means you have, you know, you're talking to the employee and better understanding what they need, right? I'm going to be taking, I'm going to be getting chemo every Thursday. So probably coming in on Friday won't be good. And I don't know how long it's going to take me to get back on my feet. So why don't we say I'll come in um, at 12 on Mondays, right? So I'm working Monday afternoon through Thursday afternoon, Um, and so it's having, and communicating that clearly to the team, how much does the employee want the team to even know, are they like wide open? I have cancer and this is my treatment, or they are like, I will be out. And that's all you need to know, you know, um, understanding that what's the communication plan, what's the work plan. And then having those, making sure that you have those conversations with the employee. A lot of managers are afraid to say the employee, you're not getting the work done. But you can say that to employee if you have taken the time to put together a work plan so that something that you and the employee agree on the work that's going to get done and then you check in. And you say, hey, how's it going? Is it getting done? Or, hey, I've noticed that you've missed these four deadlines. We probably need to reassess your ability to get some of the work done. Let's have a conversation. And so, again, you're keeping that employee connected to the organization. You're keeping your team. Your team is feeling safe, like they know what's happening. They know that you've got it covered. Um, and then you're also helping your ability you just because they're sick doesn't mean you, you know, you you're, you're still being able to get things done. I think the other thing that people often forget, and I said this earlier, but your team is watching you right? So how you manage this. And if you give your team a whole bunch of extra work and you don't throw them some type of like, Hey, thank you so much, or give a reward or throw a pizza party for all the extra work that they're doing. You are now setting your team up to do, to have a lot of resentment, resentment against you and resentment against the person who is now out or who is out part-time, whatever it is. So Everything you do during this, during this time really impacts the team. I have seen teams increase their productivity, which was fascinating to watch because everyone was on point. Because the manager was talking to everyone because it meant, because the team knew how to talk to the person who was dealing with this, right? Some of the, some of the basic education of what we just talked about here is how do you, what do you say to somebody? Employees mm-hmm. want that information. So the manager took it and, you know, brought me in and we talked about what do you say? How do you act? What do you, what are your feelings about this situation? Um, and then the manager came up with a communication plan with the employee and with HR. They all worked together to come up with a communication plan so that the whole company knew the guidance. Lines, right. No one was left going can I talk to them? What am I supposed to do? None of that was happening. Everyone knew this is how to talk to them. This is the people you need to talk to. If you want to take action, this is where you find the place to take action. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the manager felt okay by saying to the employee, Hey, you know, you're, you're not meeting this. And, and one instant the employee came to them and said, you know, that goal that we set, I don't think I can do it. We need to reassess the chemo is affecting me way more than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. So you, you can, you can really have, it, it's an opportunity for a manager to to bring a cohesive, connected community of team members together to not only support each other, but to get the work done. They put it, they put in this discretionary effort when they feel like they're safe, what they do is counted and matters and that they're doing it for a greater purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's like what we can all strive for. And those uh, leaders listening Uh, really, you know, uh, be open with the person and acknowledge, like, if they're going through treatments, they might want to still have their foot in the game and do as much work as they can. Um, You know, if a person's in the classroom, like you said, it could be taking off every Friday, um, something like that, just, um, or, you know, certain afternoons, like, um, you know, if we're working with a teacher who needs to take half days, things like that. So, but acknowledging, you know, any extra work the team might do. And uh, just being respectful of the um, person who is going through treatments and uh, how much they they want people to know or not know about their situation. Exactly. Um, What is a great big lesson uh, that you want everybody listening to know um, Mm. in terms of, uh, you know, treatments that employees might be going through, bereavement, uh, they may be going through and how to... um, know go forward in these uh difficult situations
1: i think that we all underestimate greatly how much we impact the lives of those of us around us Mm -hmm. and i think the one thing i know the one thing i want everyone to know is how much they matter you know Mm -hmm. i I am, I am not here because I said earlier, you know, the people who showed up for us, they set a foundation for me, really important foundation for me to stand on as I began my new life without a husband Mm -hmm. and they, you know, the, the the things that they did still come to me and they still make me cry. They were so thoughtful, you know, just, just so someone put a cooler outside my front door so that this is the second time my husband had cancer so that I didn't have to answer the door every single time someone dropped off a meal because sometimes that was exhausting. It was such a thoughtful gesture. You know, someone filled my car up with gas. I'll never forget. I got, someone sent me $10. They didn't leave a return address. I was blogging at the time. So she said, I've been reading your blog. I feel so moved by everything that you're doing. And thank you for sharing. It's, I really find it so helpful. I don't know what to do. So all I can do is send you this $10. It's the most meaningful $10 I've ever gotten, right? Because someone, I don't know this person. I still don't know who it is, but she took the time to say, just think to herself, and she didn't think this, but this is what she's saying, I matter and I can do something. And so she took her $10 and that's what she did. And so I really want people to know you really matter. You really, really matter. And what you do and how you show up for someone in crisis does make a difference. They may never remember. It took me years to remember some of the things that people had done, but it mattered it got me on my feet. It made my life a little bit, just a tiny bit easier in the moment. And that mattered. It mattered to me and it really mattered to our children. Mm -hmm. So that's the message I want people to have. You know, if you take nothing away from this whole podcast, you know, I want you to take away. I don't say, if you need anything, let me know. But if even if you don't take that, I want you to take away the fact that you matter and how you show up for someone really does matter.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so important. It can be a small thing, but like just taking the time and showing up. Um, So you also have a book and uh, listeners can uh, receive a free sample of your book. Um, I'll link that in the show notes. Uh, Tell me a little bit about... just some of the lessons that people can learn if they uh, grab a copy of your book.
1: Sure. So the book is up here, and I wrote it um, to be really easy. So you can just open it and you flip up to, you know, chapter Act of Love number 80. Um, I wrote it to be this kind of book where, oh my gosh, what do I do? Open the book. Okay. Buy her a gas card. Got it. Go. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, I want people to th- remember it's simple. You don't have to cook meals, 80 meals for the next 80 weeks to be helpful. Um. So you can buy, you can find the book at 100 xoflovecom And that's the number 100 Acts of Love. You can also download, I know I mentioned one thing never to say, but there are four other things. Is that right? Nope. Four <laughs> other things. Clearly, I'm not a math teacher. <laughs> there are four other things that I highly recommend no one say. And this information has been gathered by talking to people who have gone through cancer and loss. And so if you'd like to download that, you can go to 100xoflove.com backslash what not to say really simple and easy what not to say, no spaces, no capitals, just what not to say. And you can download there. You'll be added to my email list where I, send out tips every week, or I let you know if I'm going to be appearing someplace or on a zoom call or holding a meeting, um, that's open to the public. So those are the two best places. Oh, you can always find me on LinkedIn as well. I do. Um, uh, I do a LinkedIn live every Thursday. If you have a question you want me to answer, I'm happy to do that for you. And then I'm also on Instagram at 100 acts of love.
0: Great. Great. Well, I'll make sure I link that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on the out of the trailer. Oh, thank podcast. you. You know, it was great learning more about uh, just how to navigate situations that will occur in the world yes. and yes. with some students at school. So it's a difficult situation, but we need to be prepared to be able to support those around
1: us. Exactly. And it's and it's and it's also sometimes one of the most beautiful times in your life as a supporter. Because you get to see a whole bunch of people coming around. You feel like you're a part of a community, and to know to be able to lead a community and help them support someone is a really powerful gift anyone can do.
0: Great, great. It
1: was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so
0: much for having me. My book, Out of the Trenches Stories of Resilient Educators, has now been published. You can access it through Amazon. You can buy it at the Road to Awesome website, or you can get it through my website at danagoodier.com. Please leave a review, and you can also access it on Kindle. Check out the show notes on danagoodier.com to learn more about this guest and links to their social media. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review wherever you download this podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues about it, and if this episode resonates especially with you, be sure to share it out on social media and tag me at OutOfTrenchesPC.